No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. <laughs> the only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking utility <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country produced players and where we play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest. Stephen Kenny, we won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And fighting is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to It was heartache for Phil as his plucky Ukrainians couldn't match the might of England's date. Misfiring Spain needed penalties to overcome the Swiss. Italy put away Belgium in a classic for shithousery. And as our friend in Denmark, Kenneth Jensen, told us last week, the sexy house that Casper Hulman is building in looking pretty, pretty sexy right now. Hello and welcome to this week's Treat the Back podcast. Joining me this week is Enda and Simon Kelly stepping in for Phil. How are you, lads? How are we doing? All good. How are you? All good. Simon, are you enjoying the tournament so far? First time we've we've heard from you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um... It took me by surprise how good it's been, actually. Uh, I kind of went into it with not much, not really looking forward to mm. it that much, really, as, as far as you can with uh, major tournaments. But uh, yeah, it's really taken me by surprise. I've enjoyed a lot of it and luckily have been able to watch a lot of it. So uh, yeah, can't wait for the semi-finals coming up. Later on, we'll be joined by Mark Critchley from the UK Independent to take a look at England's journey from 30-man squad headaches through selection head-scratchers to now being on the brink of finally ending their long-awaited major tournament drought. But first, lads, um, let's take a quick look at the quarterfinals and, and semifinals this week. And I think we'll start with the first of those quarterfinals um, and Spain, who kind of reverted to early tournament type with a little bit of a, a damn squib in front of goal. Um, against Switzerland, um, requiring penalties in the end to, to overcome them. Um, Simon, is, is that a worry for Spain? Have they emptied the tank maybe after that goal blitz against Slovakia and Croatia? Yeah, it, it's definitely a worry. I think that it's 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 crazy to look back at Spain's games and see that they they scored ten goals in in two games. Um, because looking at them against Switzerland, you're, they're trying everything not to score. Like they they are creating so many chances. Um, but the guys up front just don't seem to be uh, putting it into the back of the net. So I think it's going to be a worry for sure. And I suppose the thing is with Spain is that they really they really take control of games uh, as they did with Switzerland. And I think their passing stats were incredible and they're breaking records left, right and centre. But they're just not making a count up front. Um, I think Murata has had a bit of a nightmare so far. Um, he, obviously, I think he scored two goals, but... He's missed a hell of a lot of chances. And then when you bring in someone like Jared Moreno to try and, I suppose, give him a bit of competition, he had some some massive chances. I think two quite quite close to each other near the end of that game and uh, just spurned both of them. So it's not looking good for them, but they're still managing to score and they might be a bit worried going into this, but they seem to be getting over the line uh, up to this point anyway. Yeah, I'd, I'd just be overly concerned about mainly the confidence of that front three. I mean, Moreno probably came into the tournament as the most confident and Enrique was pretty public about how, you know, he doesn't really rely on him as his number nine and Morata is his main guy. And as we've seen, 
you know, for Chelsea, Madrid, Juventus, etc. Morata isn't really somebody you can rely on in that kind of Kane, Lewandowski reliability. Um, and you can almost see his confidence withering with each chance missed. Um, and surprising kind of the this public yearn for him to succeed, which I don't really understand. I mean, this is a striker who's been transferred for almost 200 million euros throughout his career. Um, and whether it's BBC or ITV or something, they're, they seem desperate for Morata to succeed. But ultimately, he's not really somebody you could re- rely on to take, you know, one good chance in a game, which is probably what Spain will need against Italy, considering their form. Um, they have improved throughout the tournament. I think, obviously, as we said in the last pod, bringing in Busquets in that midfield with Koke mm-hmm. and Pedri has really, you know, given them a far more solid base to build on. But ultimately, it's still a bit too tiki-taka and it's almost 2010 without the brilliance of David Villa to get them over the line. Um and you would think Italy have too much for them in the end. But, you know, it's it's been fun, though, to watch their progression all the same, you know, from the Swiss, from the Sweden, Sweden match. Um, you know, they, they certainly have improved, and they did have those goal, goal blitz in the, the two games, uh, as you mentioned. But um, I just think the game will be too tight against Italy for them to really thrive. Um, and that midfield in particular, Italy, you know, have a much younger, much more dynamic midfield. And I think that would hurt Spain ultimately in the end there's been a lot of focus on the attack um, and there hasn't been a huge amount of um, consideration for the defence and I mean I'm enjoying Alan Feely's um, tweets on the Pau Torres America Laporte situation where you have kind of the really rare uh, pairing of two left footed centre backs um, and he's of the opinion that you know you know Right, a right-footed centre back will be more comfortable on the left side because he's so used to being on the left side. Whereas, you know, generally your left-footed centre back will never play on the right side of the defence, and it's kind of creeping in at times where Laporta hasn't looked hugely comfortable. And I think at the Switzerland game, there are a couple of uh, hearing moments for him, especially. Uh, do you think that's a factor at all that you have this kind of rare situation where you have the two left-footers, and you know it mightn't be. As, uh, as as kind of comfortable as you'd find with two right-footers. Yeah, my concern with them was that they just hadn't played together coming into the tournament. Obviously, Laporte was only called up for Spain or qualified for Spain just before the tournament. Um, and I think it's had a bit of, bigger effect on Torres, who looks so comfortable beside Albiol all season for Villarreal. Mm. He's had probably the best season of his career. Um, and he looked very comfortable beside, you know, Sergio Ramos and other centre-backs throughout the last 18 months for Spain, he's become a huge part of the Enrique setup. Um, and all of a sudden, <laughs> he's thrown in with this partner who, you know, has very similar qualities to him, but probably is fractionally better than him in, in terms of, you know, his quality on the ball and certainly his confidence. I, I feel Pau has really, you know, lacked the confidence he's had for his club side this season. And, you know, he's been the one, um, especially after coming on against Slovakia, I thought he had a disastrous cameo, to be honest. Um, so he's really, really struggled, I, I feel. Um, whereas Laporte has looked far better in the two, even though he, he did struggle a bit in the last game. Um, but I think they're, you know, they're two centre backs who are learning to play with each other who neither would be used to playing with a left footed centre back. Um, and I think that's been the main issue. But certainly Busquets coming in has given them a lot more protection and probably confidence. Um, but again, you look, you know, as much as the Italy midfield will cause problems for them. You know, that dynamism that Italy have in their front three as well, 
could prove to be too much for them, who are essentially a pairing, learning on the job, who've only played, you know, a handful of games together. Um, and, uh, you know, they do have a lot of experience, obviously, with the with the fullbacks in Alba and Espilicueta, which, you know, has helped them a lot. But I think the, the semi-final will probably just be a game too far for a partnership still learning how to play with each other. Yeah, I think there is a mistake in, in both of them there. And I think that they're a centre-back pairing that can be bullied. Um, and I think that if any front three or front two are going to bully them, it's 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 the Italy, mm-hmm. Italy players. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting um, head-to-head on, on, on that front. But, yeah, I think Spain can be got at. And Spain try to take hold of games, but they don't do it in, a, in an aggressive manner. And I think Italy really take the game by the scruff of the neck, neck from the starting whistle and uh yeah those two center backs i think are going to have a bit of a bit of a problem but um yeah it'll be interesting all the same and uh, we've been well and truly on the italian bandwagon i suppose this summer but the win against belgium kind of showed to me that you know at this point they've shown they can win every type of way i mean they've had the the one-way beatings they've they've teased out extra time win um against austria now just a clinic really from start to finish um, with some superb, um, shall we say, um, game playing in the in the last <laughs> quarter of the game. Um, I mean, you'd have to think like if they did get into a similar situation against Spain, who've been struggling to score um, in certain mm. games, and like like we just said, you know, they do tend to have a mistake at the back. Like it's it's only going to go one way if the Italians can get it into a similar sort of game as the as they managed to do against Belgium. Yeah, absolutely. They're definitely the most street smart team left in the competition for sure. Um, you know, the experience in that back three, obviously Spinozola is going to be a huge loss. But I mean, you look at a Verratti and Barella, I mean, as you said in your intro, shithousery is what they're all about. And then just that kind of dynamism with, combined with experience in that front three. I mean, throughout the team and throughout the squad as well, in fairness, and even in the management team with Mancini and Viale, as we've mentioned before, there's just so much knowledge and ability and how to how to play a match and how to see a game out and how to match up against the opposition and we've seen that throughout the tournament and you know it's it's a throwback to the 2006 Italy side really in terms of having all their bases covered in terms of that mix of flair and um, experience and and just being able to manage games you know very very comfortably and, and see games out I mean um, you know against Belgium <laughs> obviously we uh, we saw Mobile's antics in the first goal, but I mean, that's what it takes sometimes, you know. Um, and obviously, not everybody enjoys it. But again, if it's your own country, you would lap it up every day of the week. Um, but you know, they can combine that with the flair that we saw um, in that first goal in particular. I mean, it's just a magnificent touch and finish. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite goals of the tournament, really. Um, so they just have such incredible balance, really. I was a bit concerned, obviously, at the start when we talked about, um, you know, the the age of the centre-backs in particular. I mean, Bonucci hasn't had a good season at Juventus. Chiellini was injured and didn't play much. But, you know, they're really rolling back the years and look so comfortable. Donnarumma is obviously very experienced for such a young keeper as well and has got his move to Paris, which seems to have given him a, a, an extra bit of confidence as well. Um, and the midfield options are, are just incredible and, you know, you'd you'd worry for Spain in particular uh, if Pedri can be, you know, kept quiet, which Italy will fancy. Then it's Busquets and Koke who are, again are are quite limited in, you know, progressing the game, which which sounds weird, obviously, because of the clubs they play for. But it's, they're very reliant on Pedri in terms of you know feeding that front three, 
and the fullbacks, obviously. But um, I think Italy will will really fancy their chances of cancelling out the Spain threat and then obviously hitting those two centre-backs um, with the front three that they've had. Um, so, no, I mean, Italy, they've, for me, they've been the team of the tournament so far. And we, we, we did yeah. say how many informed players they have coming into the tournament. Um, but I didn't expect them to be this polished and complete considering, you know, they were still finding their feet in the last 12 to 18 months as a group of players. And it's just all come together at the perfect time, similar to almost France in 2018, really, where they came into the tournament as an excellent looking squad. But those first two or three games, we weren't sure how it was all going to click. And then it just did. Um, and it's very similar for Italy now. And, you know, definitely the most confident and polished and intelligent team uh, that we've seen in the tournament so far. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how they play against Spain because I, I think it's a great matchup for them. Simon, how much much velocity do you think Spinazzola has been um, potentially uh, for for the Spain game? I mean, we've mentioned it a couple of times now over the course of uh, of our Euros podcast that there's been so many standout fullbacks, but I think he's been the only one really that's you know he's been a right sided left wing back and he's just been absolutely superb on the left hand side and you know um, I've just kind of you're just kind of waiting for how much uh, how how in what way can can Jose Moreno get his hands on him and somehow. Um, <laughs> you know, destroy him in some way. Yeah, I, yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. We'll see. We'll see what Jose can do. Um, I'm sure he'll try his best to uh, finish his <laughs> career in any way possible. But uh, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a massive loss. Uh, Spinazzola for me, I think, is one of, if not the player of the tournament so far. Uh, he's looked so good. Um, uh, the way he commands down the flanks as well is just is just brilliant. But yeah, it's a real, real shame. Um, how he got injured and and it's, it seems like a bad one as well but again I think it's one of those things where the Italian team are they're so full of um of team spirit and you saw what like there was like a couple a couple of videos going around social media of, of the team uh chanting his name and stuff on the on the flight home and, and then when he got in uh, into the hotel on his way back uh, I just think there's there's such a team spirit there that that yeah. it, can, it can drive them on um, in terms of replacement, I mean, you're looking at like if they want to play the same formation, they're looking at Emerson maybe, uh, who is is probably not uh, up to up to scratch in, in, in that sense. So it'll be interesting to see whether Mancini kind of fiddles a bit with the formation to try and make it suit the, the team without Spinazzola. Um, but yeah, it's it's he's one of those players where it's it's going to be a loss without um, with or without a replacement. Um, and and I think if you're if you're Spain, you're kind of you're looking at that, saying that's somewhere we can we can definitely take advantage of. Um, so yeah, it'll, it'll it'll be a loss nonetheless. And a quick word on Belgium. I mean, coming into this game, we were a little bit uh, cagey on them. You know, we did kind of question their, um, you know, how good they are without Hazard and without De Bruyne. And in the end, um, De Bruyne played. I'm not, you know, sure. If he was a hundred percent, he certainly didn't look at it at times. But um, I mean, it's it's another tournament that's gone by the wayside for them. It's may may might be Martinez's last tournament with them, um, unless they see see the World Cup as as one they could win. But it really is a kind of an aging side at this point, and you do wonder have they have they missed the boat on this kind of golden generation? Yeah, well, it should be Bobby Martinez's last tournament with them. I mean, to be <laughs> honest, like, um, it's, yeah, I. 
I think the decisions he made throughout the game just kind of summed it all up. I mean, you had Benteke trying to come on in the last 10 seconds in the seventh <laughs> minute of injury time. Uh, Carrasco ignored almost completely throughout the tournament when he's played almost wing back for Atletico this season. So it would have been perfect for that formation. De Bruyne clearly wasn't fit. And it was just kind of your standard car crash Belgium that you almost expect under Martinez to happen at some point in a major tournament. Um, it played pretty well throughout, um, but you were expecting them to be almost beaten by a better side at some stage uh, before the final. And that's what happened. And again, we go back to Italy being just a far more intelligent, street smart, experienced side um, and a better manager as well. And that's really what it came down to. Yeah. You know, the experience on the sideline. Um, I mean, if you look at Martinez last few years in management, he was very, very lucky to to get the Belgium job when he did. Um kind of, you know, riding the wave of these young, progressive managers who who will play attacking football, which, you know, he has done throughout his career, tried to, certainly at Swansea, Wigan and Everton, but overall struggled to see it through um, and to be given such a talented squad at, at the time that he was. And, you know, it, it's, it was just a, a strange decision, I felt, and I don't think they've really you know, made the most of it. Um, obviously, third place in the World Cup is a decent achievement, but they didn't really put up a, a fight against France in the semi-final at the time. They didn't really do much to trouble Italy. Um, and he, I suppose he'd been slightly unfortunate, the fact that Hazard has, you know, had a disastrous two years of his career when he should have really been at, at his top form along with De Bruyne. But, you know, that aside, you know, there's enough talent um, coming through in Belgium for him to... Um, to be able to manage that. Um, and, you know, he just looked desperate in particular for De Bruyne to, to get him out of trouble, um, similar to the France match in, in 2018. Um, and they just weren't able to do that. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, similar to, you know, France in a way, maybe they have a lot of soul searching to do in the next 18 months um, ahead of the World Cup, you know, in terms of, what they want to do with the squad, finding their best 11, finding a manager who can get the best out of that first 11. Um, and, you know, Portugal are in a similar situation as well. So it, it's been a surprise for me. The only thing is how many teams have come in kind of underprepared for this tournament because they've had three years to nail down their best 11, their best kind of start, their best 23, best 26 players. Even England to a point, you know, Southgate naming 29, 30 players a few months ago to try and, buy himself a bit more time to nail down his squad um, and he got it right in the end but Portugal, France and Belgium didn't and it's cost them um, and it, it only took a couple of injuries to reveal the deficiencies in, in their own decisions uh, in terms of the players they brought to the tournament um, and I think he was so reliant on a few key players yeah. um, and, and once they weren't able to get him over the line they really really struggled I mean that back three looked shambolic at times, especially since that Denmark match. You know, um, Alderweireld and Vertonghen's best days are certainly behind them. Denier has had a decent couple of years at Lyon, but again, he's not somebody who, you know, would overly concern uh, attackers. Um, and he's looked a bit of a nervous wreck as well. So, you know, Witzel has just come back from being injured for six months as well. So he was shoehorned into the side. So really, of all the midfielders, Tielemans was the only one who was coming in to the tournament fit and in confidence. Um, and that kind of showed in the end, really. Um, and that's that's ultimately where he was let down. Um, and that midfield battle against Italy was just one way. Um, 
and I, I don't really know where Belgium go from here. They have some big decisions to make in terms of how competitive they want to be in the next World Cup because, you know, a lot of those players will be, you know, 30-plus, especially the centre-backs. I think De Bruyne, mm-hmm. Lukaku and Hazard could be in decent shape if certainly Hazard turns his career around at Madrid. But um, apart from that, you'd be very concerned about Belgium in the next World Cup in terms of how competitive they can be. Yeah, I would agree. I think that um, it'll be really interesting to see how Belgium line up in the World Cup because when you yeah when you look at those players like Vertonghen, Alderweireld, Witzel, Mertens, Vermeulen are all past their best days and heading into their mid thirties. Um, you have a good spot spine really, I suppose, of like Tielemans, De Bruyne, Lukaku, uh, Hazard as well to an extent, and then you do have some youngsters like uh, like Doku who looked. Fantastic. He was one of the bright sparks against Italy and mm. almost scored probably one of the best goals of the tournament. It would have been incredible how he, he jinked past about three Italy players and blasted it over. But um, it looks, like, um, it looks like a little rugby league winger or something. Yeah, I heard someone say that. Yeah, he kind of like the way he drops his shoulder is, uh, is, is similar to like a rugby player. And like he, he's going to have a massive future because I didn't actually know too much about him um, and was shocked at how, how young he is. So. Um, yeah, there is certainly bright sparks there for Belgium, but it, it will be interesting to see both what the squad is like and who the manager will be. Because yeah, I agree with Enda. It's it's long time that uh, Mr. Martinez uh, gets out of Belgium there because it was a strange appointment in the first place, and it seems that his whole tenure there, for me anyway, has been just par for the course. It's basically what you should expect to get out of a squad of this uh, of this caliber. And they really, really should have pushed for it. I think they they missed their their chance uh, massively in the World Cup, and I think this this uh, tournament was made basically just kind of hanging on by a thread and just keeping all the the old guard in just to have one yeah. more go of it, and it just didn't work out. Lads, how about the Danes? Um, I mean, another really impressive performance. Um, they've had a string of them now, and I mean, like we went in expecting a fairly even game against the Czech Republic, but they looked so average in that first half. Um, and Denmark, who like they were obviously helped by that early goal for um, Thomas Delaney, um, able to kind of frustrate the life out of the Czechs then and get that second goal just before halftime. Um, um, they did play a little bit of a dangerous game in the second half. They kind of sat back and invited a lot of pressure, but um, I don't think they looked like the Czechs never looked threatening at any point. I don't think um, the Dan- Danes were too worried Um you know, to lose lead or even um, get back to a to a two all draw. So um, another really impressive performance for the Danes. And I mean, like we had Kenneth on last week, who um, was quietly confident of beating the Czech Republic. Um, like you know, they did look a little bit tired, but there is something there, isn't there? There is a kind of a feeling that you know, lightning could easily strike against England if if they did get the kind of the right emotion behind it. Yeah, there's definitely. Um... There's definitely a spark there for Denmark and they've been so good to watch. I mean, they've, they've done so well, not just on, off the back of, of what happened to Christian Eriksen, but on the pitch as well, like like even ignoring that, the fact that they've, they've lost their best player and their most creative player and they've just looked, you know, like like it hasn't it hasn't phased them on the pitch. So they've really rallied rallied around that and uh, and, and come back stronger and... Yeah, there, there seems to be something special about this Denmark squad. I mean, if you look at it, like players like Pierre Emil Hoiberg, who I don't think anyone expected to become uh, Denmark's creative outlet, 
but has kind of transformed himself within this microcosm of the tournament to, I think, create most of the chances um, in the Euro so far. I think he, he's only behind mm. one or two other players, but uh, they've really transformed themselves. And players have come in, like like Casper uh, Dolberg um, and a few others, they've just they've just looked great all over the park, um, especially down that left-hand flank with uh, with Mela as well. I think he's going to be a, a massive asset to them uh, in the in the upcoming game against mm. against England because I think he's going to be Denmark especially are going to be tar- are going to be targeting that left flank. Um, if you look at players like Kyle Walker, Kieran Trippier, I think they they might come into a bit of danger and there's a there's a there's a mistake in both of them. So um, Denmark look look brilliant. Uh, they yeah they did kind of rest on the laurels slightly in the Czech game, but again it just proves that they can kind of sit back on games. They can protect the lead. And there's more about them than just the attacking flair that they have. Um, there's a real strength uh, to this team, and I think it's it's one of those things where it's just written in the stars. But you don't want to say it too much because <laughs> it is it is England, and England are an extremely strong team. Um, you, you can't forget that one. But yeah, there's there's something there's something there with, with Denmark, and uh, I think I think they can definitely put up a, a massive challenge to, to England in the semis. Yeah, it's that midfield pairing in particular that has really taken on the mantle since the Ericsson incident. You know, if you think of Hoiberg, he almost tried to become the Mourinho destroyer and everybody almost forgot, you know, what a good footballer he is. We saw that Southampton, he was hugely rated at Bayern um, Mm. in his youth career. Um, And then Delaney has just kind of stepped it up a level. He's not really pulled up any trees at Dortmund in his last few years. He's been... Okay, but Witzel has been, you know, far more influential and Bellingham is going to, you know, take over the mantle there beside him. But, you know, the pair of them have been really fantastic. And then obviously this Dahlberg renaissance that nobody really saw coming. Um, You know, they came into the tournament with Braithwaite and Poulsen really as their strikers. And, you know, you almost forget how good Dahlberg was for Ajax as a teenager. And, you know, he was the main reason they got to the Europa League final in 2017. And, it's all gone a bit downhill for him since. Obviously, you know, incidents off the pitch with his watch being stolen in France and things like that. <laughs> it's But, you know, he's still very young and talented and, and it's really taken off for him. And that's really what you need. Um, you know, there's almost kind of Rossi 82 vibes or something like that from how he's just come into the tournament and been, been the marksman, really, for, for Denmark out of nowhere. Um, so it, it's, you know, as... You know, as our guest said last week, you know, to similar vibes to 92 and you really kind of feel that now where nobody's expecting Denmark to do anything, but they have that mix of experience and youth and they just seem to be able to get over the line. I was very concerned about how tired they looked at the end of that Czech match, so I'm not going to lie, considering how fresh England have been um, and really cakewalked against Ukraine. Um, But that aside, you know, they, they do have a chance against England. That formation does lend itself to causing England some doubts in terms of their selection that we'll talk about later on, obviously. But um, I could see Southgate going quite defensive against a 3-5-2, especially with somebody like Dahlberg up front and, and the, the threat that the wing-backs pose. Um, and that experience in midfield could match up well against a slightly more inexperienced England uh, pairing. So it'll definitely be an interesting match. And, you know, I think England are underestimating what Denmark could do. I think the worry for England as well is that Denmark look great going forward, but they also look really strong on the counter. So no matter how England or Denmark set up, mm. there's going to be 
an advantage there for Denmark and something that they can kind of spring a trap on England with. Um, so, yeah, and they also look, like, as I said before, they're, they're so strong um, physically and in the air as well. I think that's somewhere where they can take advantage of in that England game coming up as well. Yeah, they have a nice kind of profile, don't they, between, I suppose, your grafters in the middle with Delaney and Heiberg and then kind of your older heads, you know, the likes of Schmeichel and Kyer and um, Dolberg and Dansgaard then, kind of the, the younger guys providing that little bit of quality. Um, quick word for Joachim Camille's uh, cross for the goal. I mean, it has to be one of the... The moments of the of the competition, absolutely outrageous. Yeah, <laughs> it, it takes a special skill to to hit a cross like that with the outside of your boot. You see mm. the likes of Gareth Bale do that uh, on a regular basis, but you don't see many other players doing it. Yeah, it's we incredible. we saw Pogba do it against Germany, but the fact that it was a straight assist makes it a bit more tasty. I think yeah. you know, but uh, it was just. I mean, we the quality of football throughout the tournament really yeah. has surprised me considering. Yeah. You know, we've talked about what a slog this season has been across Europe and watching these games and, you know, every team looked dead on their feet by the end of the season. And I think the finals in the Europa League and the Champions League really f- reflected that. Um, so it's been really surprising to see the energy and quality and finesse that teams have had throughout the Euros. I didn't expect it at all. I thought it'd be a complete slog, similar to almost, you know, the World Cup in 2014, I think, where every game just felt, you know, slightly exhausting. But... It's been really incredible to teams respond to the crowd and, you know, traveling across Europe to these different stadiums. And, you know, it's it's has me looking forward to the new season again as well. Um, and, you know, it's it's been really ex- it's been an exceptional tournament in the circumstances. And, um, you know, we've seen some incredible assists and goals. We'll be getting into England um, in more detail with Mark um, a little bit later on, but I would like to get your thoughts on the Ukraine game, um, and I suppose going into the Denmark game in the semi-final, um, probably took two or three minutes for, uh, for for me to realize, you know, that this is kind of going to be a little bit of one-way traffic against Ukraine. And then, I mean, England just completely stepped off the gas and were kind of happy to, to sit back for a while. And I suppose that was the, the, the undoing of Ukraine. I mean, they completely tanked out in the second half and it was just a means of, uh, of piling on the scoring. Yeah, I think that um, England looked looked brilliant against against Ukraine. Uh, I think there there might be a, a bit of false optimism in going into the Denmark game because of how easy that game actually was for them, especially some of the goals that they scored. Um, uh, my mind goes to the, I think it was the Maguire goal, and I think it was the Henderson goal. Oh no, sorry, it was the Kane and the Henderson goal, yeah. where there was just virtually zero defending, and it was almost like people were running away from both of them when it, when the balls came into the box. They were completely free headers and, and just uh, so easy for them to score it. And it it, it kind of padded on to the to the confidence that they that, that take into the Denmark game. But it, it that's not to take anything away from England. They looked really, really good and they've been one of the best teams in the tournament. We can't we can't deny it. Uh, and to have not have conceded a goal uh, going into a semi-final is is absolutely uh, incredible. So Kane looks to be hitting a stride as well, which is good news for them. He seemed to have kind of realised that he's kind of playing a more traditional striker role. Obviously, we saw in the in the group stages that he was kind of dropping deep a lot and he wasn't getting the ball much. And there seemed to be a problem there, and a lot of people were kind of getting on his back. But he's he's proved that he can. Versatile in the, in the sense where he can just kind of switch back to a more, yeah, 
a more traditional striker role and that's fine if if he can get him onto the ball and he's proven that he can score it with just a couple of chances um that first goal for him was a classic harry kane goal i mean there seems to be that kind of weird thing that he does where i've seen a, i've seen about three or four goals that he scored similar where he kind of jumps onto his arse onto the get onto the ground and just like prods it past the keeper um but yeah, so it was a classic Harry Kane goal, and he's going to get so much confidence from from those two goals, and uh, it's it's not good for for Denmark um, that he's coming into form at this stage. Yeah, I text the group at the time saying you wouldn't want the Ukrainian group, you know, in the trench or the Ukrainian keeper in the trenches, which you, <laughs> you know he could have really smothered the Kane chance, and instead he just kind of you know, <laughs> head turned and stuck the arms out, um, but. Yeah, I suppose the only concern for England is because it was so comfortable um, because of the opponents they have in the semi-final. There is a, it's very similar to the World Cup three years ago where they mm. breezed the quarterfinal um, and then came into the semi-final basically expecting a, a very tired Croatia who'd come through, I think, two penalty shootouts at the time. Um, and I think they're expecting Denmark to be, you know, similarly tired and weak and you know that would be my only concern especially them being at Wembley again um so if they can manage that and learn from what happened against Croatia I think think they should be in good shape but um it should be a, a very very competitive match um and I I think they've really nailed how they want to play these matches now where 3 years ago it was very sticking to the 3-5-2 regardless of the opposition and it was very laboured and reliant on set pieces they've added that bit of flair now obviously mounted 10 and we saw the impact of Sancho and Sterling in the last game in particular um so I, I think they should be in good shape if they don't underestimate Denmark I'm Henry And depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket, you have eggs class one, class two, class three. And some are more expensive than others, and some give you better omelets. So when, when the class one eggs are in Waitrose and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's an office small team with many problems. I want my players play with balls. We're joined by the independent Mark Critchley to take a look at England's Euro 2020 run thus far as they prepare to host Denmark in the semi-finals in anticipation of football maybe finally coming home. Thanks for coming on, Mark. Hope you're well. Yeah, all good. Thanks for having me on. So it's been a really strange journey thus far for England, I suppose, beginning with some of the selection disagreements early on in the opening couple of games um, and the huge swell of opinion when each team was announced to now where everyone has kind of come to the conclusion that maybe Southgate and Co knew what they were at all along um, and were kind of cool with that. How would you sum up England's campaign so far? Um, uh, how would I sum it up? I think I would say that you're right to identify that there is a lot of doubt and a lot of uncertainty at the, at the very start. Um, you know, there, there's, there's always a lot of opinions about 
who should play, but um, in a, in an England team in a, a major tournament. But it feels like that was particularly magnified this time around, simply because you have probably the deepest and strongest pool of talent that England's been able to call on in years and years. And you can still only pick 11 players out of that. And I think, um, you know, all the kind of uh, the atomic kitten, all the M&S waistcoat kind of Southgate mania of like three years ago at the World <laughs> Cup, all that had kind of, it had just kind of dropped off a bit because um, I, I almost think it was inevitable because you almost need these concentrated uh, months of a tournament international football to really kind of invigorate people about international football and national teams because we get so, you know, we're, our dopamine receptors, they're all just hooked onto the Premier League and, and things like that. And, yeah. and that weekly kind of narrative of club football, that it takes a while to get back into it. But once people were back in, um, you know, the debate, especially around the squad and about who should play, they they were as lively and as, as contested as I can remember really for an England team. Um, but since then, yeah, like you say, I think people have started to at least come to terms with the fact that Gareth Southgate may actually be pretty good at this. You know, he may actually be a guy who, um, although he doesn't have a, a great track record in terms of a traditional kind of managerial record behind him, mm. um, he does have um, a lot of experience within the FA and within the setup. And he was a guy that they trusted to oversee as, as a kind of technical director a lot of the reforms and a lot of the um, a lot of the changes that were made at the start yeah. of the, the last decade so um, he, he knows his stuff and I think people are start, like you say people are starting to try and come to terms with that now um, you know whether whether it will mean that they're actually successful I think is difficult to say because um, tournament football is just very unpredictable and I think England have had two very good tournaments. Whatever happens, this will be a good tournament. The last one was as well. Some of that you could perhaps put down to the fact they've been a bit, little bit lucky with the draws that they've had. Um, mm. They're definitely on the on the weaker side of the draw this time around, and they kind of engineered it in a way in the last tournament to be like that. But also, they've won that game against Germany, and I think that will be remembered um, as one which was a real kind of defining moment and a turning point, really where you could say they have beaten a, a, a big, successful nation at this tournament. And, um, you know, that's that's a real mark in the sand for Southgate, I think. And, um, yeah, and, and we see how it goes from here, I guess, whether it comes home or not. On Southgate, I mean, like, we've been banging on about it on this podcast for the past couple of weeks. Like, he is a really, really likeable guy. Um, yeah. You know, I think everyone kind of likes to see him do well and you know the the storyline of the redemption from from the penalty miss in in 1996 but he does strike me as the right manager at the right time for this particular group of players and how kind of um diverse it is and and how you know they want to be outspoken and they want to kind of express themselves and he has really kind of made them stand out in 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 terms of you know being able to be individuals but as a unit as well come together so strongly Totally, totally, 100%. I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because basically none of this would have happened if it wasn't for Sam Allardyce drinking that pint of wine and the delicate <laughs> story, and which which is true. Like, And this, this may be something interesting to be written about that because for all the talk about all these processes that were in place, which Southgate was a part of, England could have gone on a very different direction there. Um, and you wonder just how far that that kind of relationship would have lasted. That journey lasted. It only lasted one game in the end. So, but, you know, whatever, that, that happened. And I think 
what you can say is that the, the, the uh, is it well that was 2016 so the five years now basically mm. nearly five years that that the journey that they've been on since then has been one of very gradual very slow but I think undeniable progress uh, and that trajectory has always gone upwards um, I did a piece a couple of weeks ago speaking to people who um, played under Southgate um, David Buiter, who played at Prim at Middlesbrough when he was just starting out, and but also John, uh, I like called Jonathan Bond, who's a goalkeeper at LA Galaxy, used to be at Watford and West Brom, and he, particularly him, what he what he saw how Southgate worked within the FA setup, and it was it was very much that he came in and was doing something completely different to what he'd experienced within the FA and within the England setup before. Um, whether that was like a, a more kind of progressive style of play, whether it was his his method of man management. One thing he said to me was that you actually started to enjoy going away with England because there would be there wouldn't be so much this kind of results based atmosphere. There would be it'd be more. He 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 said it was more about process. It was there was more a feeling that you know you could lose the next game one nil and it wouldn't be the end of the world. You'd still you wouldn't be blamed for it. You'd still yeah. be coming back to the next camp. You know what I mean? And it, it felt like there wasn't that as much pressure on you to succeed. Um, but that they felt that by, by kind of engendering that environment, that, that their success would be more likely in the long run. And, you know, I think look at, look at what's happened over the last five years. You say he's been vindicated. Um, that isn't to say that there haven't been moments where things have looked like they could go backwards. I think, there was, there was a funny period around 2017 before the World Cup, before you have that first major tournament, which brings people together, like I said before, where I remember fans were like making paper aeroplanes in the stands and throwing them down on the pitch. And people were so bored during games, they were trying to throw these paper planes into the goal rather than actually watch what was going on. And this is while England are actually playing qualifiers and qualifying for major tournaments, uh, which a lot of countries would, you know, certainly wouldn't take for granted in the same way. I think what you've seen over those the three years since then, certainly with the two tournaments, is, um, you know, people come behind Southgate uh, during those summers and also people begin to recognise that what's happening within the camp, <laughs> the, the players respond to it so much better as well. I, mean, I, I know footballers are never going to say that they're having a shit time and they hate it and, you know, uh, they, <laughs> you know, they'd rather be at home with their families when they're at a, when they're at a World mm. Cup or a Euros. But, being around St George's Park as I've been every so often the past couple of weeks, you the, the the sense that they are enjoying themselves and they are there is a collective there and and almost a club atmosphere that everyone talks it's a cliche but that that kind of club atmosphere people talk about that you need to succeed in in international football. Mm. That when they answer and say that it, it feels genuine it feels sincere, and I think um, you know a, a lot of credit has to go to Southgate and and the setup and the people that he's surrounding with him around himself with um a lot of credit has to go to them for that yeah i mean the uh, the images of Bakaya Sako and the the, the back of that <laughs> inflatable unicorn or whatever it was um just kind of show that uh, there does seem to be a good bit of banter in the team and I suppose I would like there to be something new though as well I would like you know we had the (laughs) unicorns last time we've we've had all the darts tournaments as well I just wonder whether you know the the 2022 World Cup it's not far away now it's like 18 months and where we'll be like you know that again who's talking you know yeah (laughs) something like that yeah (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask about one player in particular who I suppose is kind of 
defied the doubters in many ways is Raheem Sterling. Um, I mean, mm. coming into the tournament, he was completely out of form at Manchester City. I mean, there was a very strong debate that he wouldn't be in the starting eleven. That he's you know well down the pecking order when compared to the likes of Grealish or Sancho. But he's emerged as such a hugely important player for England. Um, not only in his goals, but I think overall in his general play, he's probably stood out to me as one of the best players for England. Um, and now he's in the player of the tournament conversation. I mean, it's been a it's been a remarkable turnaround when you can you know when you consider. I suppose the criticism he's had over the years from from certain outlets in the media, um, you know, having to deal with a lot of racism from from support, um, to now being really much the the hero for England this summer. Totally, um, I think that the the debate around his position coming into the tournament was justified externally because um, he wasn't playing well for City. For well, you know, he, you know, he was playing okay. He, he wasn't having watched him basically every week. It wasn't quite at the level that he was at last season when he was scoring quite, uh, you know, I can't, I can't, numbers off the top of my head. But he, he he scored. He was he was prolific last season. He wasn't this season. But the thing was, like, you can't actually play yourself into form if you're not in the team. And he he wasn't starting for the last three months of the season, which is I think when more widely in the, like the national press and. and, and pundits and stuff that's when people started to pick up on the fact that maybe he hasn't been in great form this season what you've seen with England though is a guy who's basically never let Southgate down if you go back through the qualifying campaign which was a long time ago now yeah but if you go through the goals that England scored they were top scorers in qualifying I think Sterling together with Kane was responsible for about half of them and that was a pretty even split between the two Kane was slightly more because he's on penalties obviously so he's always delivered for Southgate is what I'm trying to say basically in a long-winded way and I think while the, that debate was out on the outside inside it was never really a question he was always going to be the, the guy um, and in terms of a front three even though England are stacked with all this attacking talent now two of the places were nailed so really the only debate has ever really been about that that, that last one, which is on the right-hand side. And you've seen that change throughout the tournament. But, I mean, on Sterling, I think, um, yeah, it, it's funny. I, I think he's a player who can sometimes come into fits and starts. If you think of him for England, his first, again, I don't know the numbers in front of me, but I think he scored two goals in something like his first 35 or 40 caps. And that was a real debate, um, which is partly why during the last World Cup there was also a lot of focus on his position no matter whether he's playing well or not he wasn't scoring and so he, he'd constantly be the subject of um, you know the colour pieces and the sidebars that you know your national newspaper journalist would write from the game and there was a lot of attention around that as well but since then since that tournament I remember him scoring I think he scored in the in the win at, against Spain in the Nations League which was the, the autumn after that World Cup since then, it's something like 15 in 20, and he's been ex- extremely prolific. So, um, you know, that, like I say, I don't think internally that that there was any doubt that this he was capable of this and that he was able to go on a, a run if he was just given that bit of belief um, and, and shown that kind of faith and trust, which, you know, he, he perhaps, perhaps feels that he didn't quite get at City over the last of the last few months. Um, it's interesting to see. I mean, we we spoke to him a, a few weeks ago, and he he did kind of raise that. He did say that, you know, he he looks happier. Um, 
he's happier now in himself because he's playing football and he'll always be happier as long as he's playing football. And that felt like a, it got a little bit overlooked, but it felt like a little bit of a coded message that perhaps he hasn't been always in, in his best place over the last year. But you're definitely seeing that now. And I think you're seeing just what an excellent player he is, really. Like his performance the other night against Ukraine, I don't know, like I, I thought he was the man of the match that night because the, just the move, the carry and the, and the pass for the first goal itself, you know, that was that in itself was brilliant. And yeah, you're seeing now Raheem Stone at the very top of his game. And yeah, he is in that play of the tournament conversation, as you say. Mark, I must admit, I was one of those who was very critical of Southgate early doors um, and how pragmatic the England team appeared to be, yeah. um, especially with the Germany lineup. But against Ukraine, he got it spot on. And I felt what was really impressive was how quick and sharp that front four looked right from the off, really. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just exceptional to see you know, the one touch, the movement, Sancho moving from left to right, Sterling doing the same and the link up with Kane and Mount. It was just phenomenal to watch. Very, um, very Premier League uh, in the most positive way um, mm -hmm. you could imagine. Um, but in terms of Denmark and their kind of this 3-5-2 that they've settled on, do you think that will impact how, how Southgate will go in terms of his starting lineup and formation? Do you expect to see something more similar to the Germany lineup or the Ukraine lineup? It's an interesting question. I think um, that the, the Germany lineup was very opponent specific. I think the Germany lineup was the game plan was all around stopping the wing backs because you'd seen them how they played against Portugal, where Portugal didn't pay any attention to, to Gosens and uh, Kimmich really and got severely punished. And if you know, it was it was pretty clear at Wembley um, for that game that. Trippier and and Trippier in particular, uh, sure as well, but Trippier in particular had real really set jobs um, in terms of man marking, in terms of pressing them as soon as they got the ball. Uh, so <laughs> that felt to me like very very opponent specific. Um, Denmark they they do play a similar system. I would I would be surprised. I think simply because. Um, and I'm conscious of going on an Irish podcast and sounding like a typical Englishman. <laughs> I just think England are favoured for the game. I think they're favourites for the game, whereas I don't think that was necessarily the case. I think people are underestimating Denmark. I think they're an extremely good side. Um, and I think, you know, whatever you want to say about the, the Ericsson situation, I think with or without him, they've shown that they can really compete with teams in this tournament. They were the better side against Belgium. Um, and even though that made it two defeats out of two in the first game, we can kind of write off as just like, you know, I don't think it, whatever, whatever you say about that, I don't think it's something we can really take into account. They were the better side against Belgium, beat Russia, um, beat Wales handily and didn't really have many problems against the Czech Republic. So they're a strong side. I just feel that like there was... The Germany game was one way. I think he specifically wanted to go man for man because he felt that that game was a 50-50 balance and he felt that at, at Wembley he would be able to you, you know, nullify Germany's specific threats. I think Denmark have more kind of... Um, you know, I, I think Heuberg basically is the player that, without Ericsson, Heuberg seems to be the player that they've looked to. He's the guy that's making a lot of key passes. He's... Um, setting up chances. I think he was only, he's behind, only behind De Bruyne in terms of the whole tournament, uh, in terms of chances created now. So whether there'll be more of a specific job on him rather than a kind of man-for-man -man 11 against 11, like you saw against Germany, 
um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm more leading towards a similar system and, and lineup as to the one you saw the other night. I might even, I, I don't almost expect Southgate to do this, but I would even maybe not change it. I would, I would probably keep Sancho in the role because I think he was, he was good without being spectacular the other night. Um, he wasn't on the same level as Sterling. I didn't think from the performance, but he has that ability to go inside and outside on his right foot on that right hand side, and and that makes it a little bit more unpredictable. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if he stuck with it, um, because it just felt like that Germany game was a bit of a one off to me. Mark, do you feel that there's a worry that maybe see for the Germany game there was this massive release of energy from the England team. It, it looked like things were starting to click together. Yeah. And I suppose they carried that momentum into the into the Ukraine game as well. But on the other hand, you could also argue that Ukraine basically opened the door for them to go into this semi-final. Do you think that there might be a worry that there's a slight loss of momentum they, they could be carrying into this Denmark game and it could take them off guard? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a problem when you I think um England, you know, when any England win is an invite to just the worst kind of hubris and arrogance and uh, complacency. And for them to win so dominantly the other night, I yeah, I almost would be a little bit more confident about this Denmark game if they'd just gone done the same performance that they'd done throughout the tournament, um, which was, you know, a very controlled um, kind of placid, if you like, 2-0, 1-0 win. Um, the other night, it felt like maybe the nation started to get ahead of itself a little bit, um, especially given that Denmark, people, some people will look at Denmark, people who, and, and they just won't think that it'll, it'll be too much of a problem. Again, you know, the, the fact that people are talking about the weaker side of the draw um, lends itself to those arguments and it, uh, it feels like, the Denmark game to me, I said this before the Ukraine game as well, it feels to me like the Croatia semi-final three years ago. It feels like a potential banana skin that people will <laughs> will will not approach correctly. But one thing I'd say about that is that I don't think um, the defeat to Croatia three years ago was in any way a sense of complacency or arrogance within the team, within the setup itself. I think Southgate's been very keen to, to stomp all that out. Um, and I, I, you don't get the sense that within the camp people are getting a, getting ahead of themselves in any way. Uh, I just, yeah, I, I just feel that maybe he would have preferred. <laughs> it's funny. I, I, I came back. I thought it was really interesting after the Germany game. He said people were talking about like, are you, are you a bit, you know, like frustrated that you're not playing at Wembley again? And he said, no, actually, I like that because I feel like we would not have been able to recreate that atmosphere and, and going away and playing in a different stadium and um, with a different, very different crowd, a very different atmosphere, that almost breaks that kind of... We wouldn't be able to recreate the atmosphere and that breaks it for us. Um, and I think there's now enough distance between this game and the Germany game for it, for it to, you know, for this to feel like its own special occasion now and separate from that. But yeah, there is, there is a concern that Things were so easy, so dominant. It felt like they were peaking <laughs> on Saturday night. That this could be this could be the downfall. But maybe that's just I'm like, I'm I'm a pessimist, man. Like, I'm a natural pessimist. So 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 maybe that's just me. Yeah. One thing we've seen is 
the focus on Southgate's man management. And if you look in particular at, you know, Shaw raising his level again, although we saw that United this season, but he had a bit of a dip at the end and to come into this tournament so confident again. And more specifically, the midfield pivot, which is, you know, was torn to shreds pre-match almost every lineup announcement, really, of mm-hmm. um, Phillips and Rice, but and largely unproven to this point, um, but how he's got them to work together. Um, how much of an influence has his man management had on this team, not just this year, but obviously in the last kind of four to five years compared to maybe previous managers who didn't have that type of relationship with the players? Yeah, I think it's I think it's his strongest asset, to be honest. Like you speak to people around, people people who work with him. Like I said for that piece that I did the other week, it was one thing that came strongest. Um like he, that Jonathan Bond, he was saying how when he was in the under twenty ones with him, um he left well he he you know, he outgrew the under twenty ones basically. Um and he was waiting for a few caps to come through and he, he, he received a handwritten letter off Gareth that was personalised to him, thanking him for his like catching up with him, thanking him for all his efforts, um, you know, reminiscing about certain things. David Wheater said exactly the same. He was doing exactly the same thing a good, what, seven or no, five, five, six, seven years before that at Middlesbrough. Um, and you can see it within this camp as well. You've picked out some players there. Shaw's definitely one who is a guy who who has always needed managers who... Uh, trust him and have faith in his abilities and and is now showing that because he's got one at his club and he's got one at international level as well. Um, but I think even beyond the players that you've picked out there, the players that are starting, what is important as well and what has been, he has referenced a couple of times is he needs to acknowledge the guys who aren't playing, who are on the sidelines, who are, who are part of the dynamic and part of the squad, but haven't got the opportunities because opportunities are limited and I, I think you know like I said before going around St George's Park you don't get the sense that there's that kind of tension there's that, that there's that kind of um any kind of awkwardness or difficulty in the in in the in the fact that some players aren't really getting that much of a looking um I think uh off the top of my head Cody Ben White and Ben Chilwell um who's under slightly different circumstances because of the COVID and the isolation, but those are the three players that haven't had any minutes. But really, like, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, this, this, even Grealish, you know, even, even like the cult hero <laughs> of this tournament among England supporters has had one start and a couple of sub-appearances. But you don't really get that sense. Phil Foden as well, we should mention, like, he played the first two and really hasn't been seen since. Um, it's difficult to keep all those kind of not egos, but just the, just the dynamic right and the relationships right. Um, but everything you hear is that Southgate's managed to do that, and that's a testament to his man management skills as much as anything else, I think. But yeah, when you speak to people, they always say that that is his one big characteristic. He isn't a big guy on the training ground. He's not there putting the cones out. That's mainly down to Steve Holland and the rest of the support staff. But he's a guy who is always in touch. Um, is sending messages to them. When there's not international breaks on, he's keeping in, you know, he's WhatsApping, he's, um, you know, making calls, whatever. And there's always that sense, that connection that you're part of something, that you're part of a camp and that, you know, the international break, it almost, the international duty, it almost never stops. There's that sense of continuity because you're always part of it and he's always in your thoughts. And that's something that, you know, other England managers haven't done particularly well, but he's really excelled at. 
Mark, one player in particular who I suppose has kind of rejuvenated his image in many ways with um with a lot of fans in England and beyond has been Jordan Pickford. Um, I mean, uh, depending on who you speak to, I suppose a lot of people have been critical of him over the years that he's kind of prone to, to the odd mistake and, um, you know, he's been kind of, he, he has the, the nickname that his arms are, are, are tend to be a little bit shorter than most, but um, like he's been really, really impressed for England. And what stood out to me has been his distribution with his feet. He's looked super, super comfortable. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, he's he's coming out of the tournament now uh, without a single goal conceded thus far. Um, I mean, a hell of a turnaround from, from where he's been coming from. And another player under Southgate who seems to have been able to kind of get through a little bit of a sticky period um, where it comes to criticism from you know fans and media and get out the other side, uh, what looks like uh, a better player. Totally. Again, like I, I think it's similar to what we were saying about Sterling before. He, he's a guy that's never let Southgate down. So Southgate has approached this England team in this tournament as in he's building a team that knows how to play together, um, that he's used to playing together. Yes, there's been a few wildcard selections. Yes, a few players have come in and there's been a few changes here and there, but he has faith in <coughs> sorry, he has faith in a in a set group of players. And um and Pickford's one of them. I think that he had that period at the start of this season, if you remember, he was playing against um Fleetwood in the in the Carabao Cup. And, you know, he he had one of those moments that we we have seen seen from him over the last few years where he you know, his brain he just gets a bit of a hot head. And trying to play out the back and passes it straight to straight to a player and can see the goal. That sort of thing seems to have cut out of his game. But to be fair, it's never really been there for England. He's never really made that yeah. type of error, that type of mistake. So Southgate's always felt that well, whenever he's been with us, we've been able to trust him. He's been able to do it. So why would why would we change? And the distribution thing, I always felt it was a bit of a um it was something that you know, people would just automatically say about Pickford without really thinking. Like, yeah, he's just good with his feet. That's why he gets picked. But, um, I mean, it's definitely true for one thing. But um, once, you know, he was injured for the for the March internationals, for the uh, World Cup qualifiers. So Nick Pope came in and you could just tell that Pope, who's a great keeper and then, like in all the kind of traditional aspects that you'd want from a keeper, he's much taller as well. Brilliant coming for crosses he just didn't have that ability with the ball in possession that you'd want. And it really limited England's play. Um, it made them slower coming out of the back, playing out of the back. It made them less stable defensively. And there was a goal um, that they conceded against Poland in the last of those three qualifiers where a lot of the blame got put on John Stones because I think um, I think he got caught in possession after, after a pass out from, from Pope. But the pass out from Pope was, you know, it, it put him in a lot of trouble. It put him under pressure. It's the kind of thing that you don't see Pickford do. Um, I do wonder whether he's still got a little bit of a rash side to him sometimes. Um, mm. You saw it the other night when he came out for that clearance against Ukraine. But they were already 4-0 up, to be fair. But he looked like he had it under control and he sliced it and it went straight to um, your M. Chuck, I think, who had the shot blocked. So there's always those little moments, but he has he has been working on that. Um, he's been seeing a psychologist, I think has been pretty widely reported, he said it himself. He's been working on that to try and get that those kind of eccentricities and just try and iron them out of his game. And so far, again, you're seeing it working. And again, I think that's testament 
like you know he he finished the season very strongly at Everton, but within the England environment again he's always gone there and he's always felt that well Gareth trusts me um, I always play well for England so that's got to help as well on that side of things and um, yeah I, th- I think he's probably been the goalkeeper of the tournament so far I mean who else there's Jan Sommer I guess saved saved the penalty from Mbappe but. Um, it's one of those two, I think, if I, if we were picking a team now, definitely. The impact on the field will obviously be uh, be felt for quite a while, but the impact off the field, um, I mean, culturally could be felt for many years to come. Um, obviously, coming into the tournament, there was the narrative around taking the knee and whether you know the booing would continue there, but that kind of seems to have been drowned out by, uh, by uh, overwhelming support on that regard. Um, and then more recently, We've had Harry Kane wear the LGBTQ2 um, captain's armband. Henderson has had the rainbow laces. So, I mean, culturally, they're very aware and their their support of these causes has could really have such a, a huge lasting impact um, culturally. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope so. Um, whether it does or not, I, I, I mean... The you're right in saying that the reaction to the taking of the knee that you saw at the start has died out a bit, um, but there was still booze against Germany, which was the last time they played at Wembley. Obviously, mm. um, they were it was it was a bigger crowd at Wembley. So I remember you know, you know <laughs> this is this is something that I've all the journalists in the, in the press back have had to be attuned to, you know, you have to actually try and gauge how, how much booze can you hear in a crowd before, before kickoff or whatever. Uh, and the million other things you're trying to concentrate on that felt that it did feel to me louder against Germany than it had before, but there was more people in and then the applause was louder uh, and the drowning out of, of that was louder. Um, I still think that, you know, <laughs> If it, whether it comes home or not, I don't know whether England knows what to do with it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I don't think that that whether I I I I doubt football's ability to to totally heal the the divisions, if you like, and the different okay. um, the different yeah opinions that exist within this country. But that isn't to diminish um, anything of what the players have done and what they've stood up for. You know, as, as I've written about myself a few times, I think there was there was a bit of a move at the first to, to, to try and frame it as something that was not political and that was just something that everybody should agree with. But I think you've seen from the reaction itself just how important it is, that it is political fundamentally, the stance that they're taking. They have decided to do this. They didn't need to do this. It will upset some people in this country um, that in my opinion aren't worth listening to on the on the matter, but um, but it, it will do that, and it does take a degree of bravery to do that, and a degree of courage, and um, they've certainly done that. Whether you know, whether <laughs> if they if they go and win the Euros, it would all be put to one side. I don't know, but um, you know, I feel you see you, you see for example these cabinet ministers tweeting about mm. the great success when you know like a few weeks ago they were saying you can boo them um they'll they'll try and claim it and they'll try and repurpose the england team for their for their cause or for their for their politics but i think they've they've made their stance pretty clear over the last few weeks where they where they are um so yeah i don't know it's a difficult one i think i think um 
there's a lot of people in this country that will happily celebrate England's success and yet also boo them taking the knee. And that's a very sad thing. And I don't, I don't really see that changing, but I think it's incredibly important what they've done regardless of that and the stance that they've taken. And I think hopefully for all the people that will, will still boo uh, because they are still booing. I think that there's a lot of people that will, you know, there's a younger generation that will look to them and will think, well, this is, this is progressive. This is, the football team that we want to have. This is uh, the, the country that we want to live in. And for that, they should be applauded, yeah. Um, well, I can't believe we've got this far without mentioning Declan Rice or Jack Grealish. Um, <laughs> I tried I mean, before, but <laughs> you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't want to... You just we didn't put to one side. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but I mean, like, like you mentioned Grealish as, you know, he was kind of the figurehead there for a while in terms of the, the Twitter sphere, especially when he wasn't getting game time. Um, whereas Rice has really cemented his place um, for now and for many years to come. But um, I suppose the, the Irish um, link has been well forgotten at this point, um, even though uh, I saw prior to the tournament that uh, both were wheeled out um, for one of the uh, the FA's media days together, which uh, definitely stung yeah, in the craw, uh, yeah. Def- yeah. definitely stung for a couple of, uh, of Irish-based uh, um <laughs> reporters on, on the whole situation but uh, that, that's well under the water at this point I suppose for, for both Grealish and Rice Yeah definitely I think um, <laughs> it's, it's a difficult subject um, and I know I, I know feelings towards them I mean you, you know better than me feelings towards them in Ireland uh, am I right in saying that people are generally a little bit more upset about Rice because he actually played for the, tea, the, the senior team Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so, say so. Right, okay. Yeah. Especially well, following think... that happy birthday post that the FAI account put out oh, and still yeah, retweets yeah. every year. <laughs> <laughs> That's That feels unnecessary. I feel like the FAI could certainly move on from that one. Uh, no, I mean, for them, I, yeah, Miguel writes about this and because he, of course, of course yeah. is um, a dual nationality himself as well as being Irish, he's Spanish. Uh, and... You know his position on this, and I think it's the correct position. Is is that you can't really tell somebody how English they feel, how Irish they feel, whether they feel English and Irish. It, it, it's it's their prerogative and it's their decision. And um, there might there are probably other factors influencing the decision that f- footballers have to make when they're they're in that. Um, I'm not saying that was the case in either Rice or Grealish. I don't know those cases well enough to say that. Um, but I feel like, yeah, the Rice, is, Rice is now a player that is probably going to be a mainstay in that England team for the next five, six, maybe even 10 years. Grealish has a lot more competition for a place. And I, I do find it ironic that, you know, he went and there was the whole thing about whether he's going to play for Ireland, he's going to play for England. And he's, he's ended up being kind of England's Wes Houlihan <laughs> to me um, because he's this kind of maverick player that, doesn't always get in the team and people call mm. to get in the team and people think should be playing somewhere, but he doesn't quite fit in yet. Um, so, but I don't think either of them to regret that decision. I would say, um, speaking to Grealish last week, they put him up at St. George's Park again and he is <laughs> reveling, you know, he's indulging in the fact that he is this guy that um, has become something of a, an icon really. Um, 
the only downside that it seems to be for him for, to it is that he can't go out and get pissed and like watch watch England in Box Park with all his mates like he would be doing anyway. That's he, he seems genuinely kind of regretful about that. And <laughs> he was saying like this is something I've struggled with throughout my career and things like that. You know, he doesn't almost he, he, he kind of he's kind of a bit envious of the anonymity, if you like, but he still seems to be really kind of relishing and taking on the fact that people are singing his name in front of a pack Wembley. So um yeah, I'm sorry to say, but I don't think they they necessarily regret any of the <laughs> any of the decisions that they made. Um and yeah, it's it's fortunate for Ireland. I'm sorry. <laughs> Finally, Mark, I mean Denmark in the semi-finals in Wembley, followed by potentially um with a final against Spain or Italy. Is is football coming home? Um, dare you say it, it, this is the year? Um, because it's certainly like so many things have gone England's way, be it, you know, the schedule um, with so many games being in Wembley. Um, a lot of the, the, the teams that had to travel around Europe have been knocked out at this point. And we seem to be down to four teams that were host nations themselves and, and, and all kind of had that little extra rest period. But it all seems to be going in the right direction for England right now. Yeah, look, I don't think... If, if you wanted to be one of the four teams that are in this tournament still, you'd want to be England. I think that's clear. Um, it's interesting today. I saw the Spanish uh, national team's Twitter account putting out like an advertisement that was like, your country needs you to any Spanish expats who live in the UK because they'll be able to, to go to Wembley. They'll be able to be at the stadium. Um, it's definitely an advantage. And I think it is overlooked slightly that, you know, these games that we're about to do now, these were supposed to be the only games that were at Wembley mm. initially, um, because I think there was obviously the game that obviously Dublin lost its host yeah. status um, a couple of months ago, and that would have been the Germany game. But before that, I think the, the three group games were supposed to be played in Brussels, but there was some issue with like constructing a new stadium there. So so England wouldn't even have had that advantage then. Um, the advantage was always pre like backloaded, if you like, into these games. And the, the incentive was, I remember at the time, people saying, well, if we can get to the semi-finals and the final, we've got a really good chance. They, they've had a bit of a bigger helping hand in that sense, just through kind of circumstance. Um, but yeah, that's that's certainly in their favour. Um, the fact that they haven't had to do as much travel, even less travel really than any other team in the tournament. You know, the, the Ukraine game was the first game that they played outside of the, their own country, which was the, first, the last team in the tournament to do that, if you like. Um so those advantages are on the side, certainly. Whether whether they've got what it takes to actually do it, um, I think in you know, I think the Denmark game is tough enough. Like I've said, it feels to yeah. me like the kind of banana skin that, that that Croatia felt like a few years ago. But if they get past that, I think a game against Spain or Italy really is a, a kind of fifty fifty toss up in the same in the same way as the Germany one. Um, and I, I, to be honest, I'd even be tempted. To, I know it doesn't make sense with what I just said, but I'd even be tempted to say this Denmark game is tougher than the Germany one because I feel like Germany, whereas they were on a team who were who who were who were struggling to really impress, Denmark have, have only impressed, um, and they have that momentum behind them. So this is the real this is the real difficult part of the tournament for England, I think. And there's still there's still a big question as well. As good as the defensive record is having not gone behind you wonder how whether if they conceded in either the semi-final or the final how would that change Southgate's game plan what would that mean would that would that 
cautious kind of conservative kind of approach that we've seen the way he's the thing that they want most out of a game is control would that have to change would that have to almost go out the window because they'd be chasing um they haven't been chasing at all during this tournament and that would be a very different dynamic a very different proposition so there's still a lot of questions but I think with all the kind of external factors about you know just the fact that it's being played at Wembley and Mm. just the fact that you're a little bit more rested um than everybody else in the competition and you haven't actually got any serious injury problems like like Italy have with Spinazzola, for example. There's nothing. There's there's no problems within the England camp. They come through them. If anything, they got through them at the start of the tournament with uh, with Maguire and Henderson. So the position is really strong. Um, but <laughs> uh, I don't <laughs> I, like I said. I'm a pessimist. What can I say? <laughs> I don't. I don't think. I don't know. I I wouldn't say that it's coming home for sure just yet. But I think they're favourites, and I think you there was. Mm. You wouldn't want to be any other team in the competition. You'd want to be England at this point. Yeah, great stuff, Mark. Thanks a million for coming on this evening. No worries, pleasure. Cheers, lads. Respect, respect, man. Respect, respect. So we leave it there. So. Okie doke. Good night and God bless.